Hello, this is Jeff Benjamin along with Bruce Kelly, co-hosting The Investment News Podcast. How you doing, Bruce? I'm great, Jeff. How are you? I'm fantastic, and uh, we got another great one coming at you, folks. We're joined today by a special guest, Dr. Burton Malkiel. Dr. Malkiel is a professor of economics emeritus and senior economist at Princeton University, perhaps most famous for his classic finance book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, first published in 1973 and in its 12th edition as of this year. He is a leading proponent of the efficient market hypothesis, which contends that prices of publicly traded assets reflect all publicly available information, although he has pointed out that some markets are inefficient. Dr. Melchior served as a member of the Council of Economic Advisors from 1975 to 1977, president of the American Finance Association in 1978 and Dean of the Yale School of Management, 1981 to 1988. He also spent 28 years as a director of the Vanguard Group. He currently serves as Chief Investment Officer to Wealthfront, and he also serves as a member of the Investment Advisory Board for Rebalance. Dr. Melchior, welcome and thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. As you know, my colleague Bruce Kelly and I have a number of questions to ask you regarding your outlook on markets in general, but we wanted to start on something you penned for the Wall Street Journal this past weekend. Your opinions and your perspective on ESG investing seems to go against the grain of at least the popular momentum of the space. A lot of money seems to be moving into ESG investing. A lot of products are being put together and investors seem to have an appetite for us. Can you, can you kind of give us your general thoughts on ESG investing? There's no question that investors have an appetite for this, particularly in 2020. We're talking about billions of dollars that have come into ESG funds. And when that happens, you can be sure that Wall Street will create more and more products so that there are a lot of ESG funds. And basically, my view is that I think people are fooling themselves if they really think that buying an ESG fund is actually going to be A, great for mankind, and B, is going to give them excess performance because certainly a lot of the ESG funds are advertised that way. In terms of why I'm not sure they're going to feel, they ought to feel that good about being in an ESG fund, is that there is no agreement whatsoever about what ESG means and which are really, quote, good companies and which aren't. There was an MIT study. It was published in 2020, and it is the title sort of gives it away. The title is Aggregate Confusion. And the point is that they looked at five of the leading services that give ESG ratings that the ESG funds use. One of the rating services is MSCI, which is this index provider that everybody Mm -hmm. knows about. So they looked at all of the ratings and they found the problem is the ratings don't agree. 
the correlation between pairs of raters is as low as 0.4. And just to put that in perspective, the correlation between Moody's and Standard and Poor's in giving credit ratings is 0.99. So there's very, very little agreement as to what's a good company and what isn't. And so I think one is kind of fooling oneself in thinking that if I buy an ESG fund, you can be sure that I'm only investing in companies that are nice and do great things for the common good. And as I look at the ESG funds, I find that you see that disagreement. You also look at the companies that are favored by the ESG funds. And I look at them and I see Facebook and Google, which have had their share of problems with privacy. I see Visa and MasterCard, which charge 20, 25% on loans, which I personally find unconscionable. And so I look at some of these funds and I say, should I really feel good about owning them? And I'm not sure the answer is yes. They're also expensive. That is to say, a simple index fund, now you can buy at essentially a zero expense ratio, whereas some of the ESG funds have a 100 basis point expense ratio. So I think that you're fooling yourself if you think that, in fact, you're doing something that is good for mankind. And I think you are definitely fooling yourself if you think you're going to get a higher rate of return from investing in ESG funds. What would you say about the performance of ESG categorized funds in 2020? It's been wonderful. There's no question about it. And the marketers have seized on that because there were two things about performance in 2020. Number one, you didn't want anything having to do with carbon. And most of the ESG funds are light, if not zero, have zero uh, oil stocks. And as one knows, the price of oil plummeted during 2020. So that helped them. The second is that it was the Facebooks and the Googles and the high-tech stocks that did well in 2020. And there is no question that ESG funds outperformed in the first half of 2020. If you look longer, though, at the longer history, there is zero, and I say zero evidence that in the long run, these companies are likely to outperform. There is simply no evidence that they do. And in terms of the future, I think one wants to ask oneself, we know the tech stocks were really on a roll. You sure didn't want to have an ESG fund with lots of tech stocks in the last two or three weeks or the last month because we've had a momentum crash on these things. And just think also, assuming that everyone agreed that we wanted to have no oil stocks, and that's not clear, you know, should you have some natural gas because that's the cleanest fuel 
and it's going to replace coal. But never mind. Suppose you had zero oil stocks for the future, and oil stocks are so hated now that they sell at lower prices relative to their earnings and prospects than other companies, then it seems to me that they may underperform in the future. So I don't think, even though it's true, in the first half of 2020, ESG funds did well. There's no evidence they do well in the long run. And I believe there's no evidence that they will do particularly well in the future because they have very high expense ratios and the popular stocks today may be exactly uh, what the unpopular ones are in the future. And I continue to believe that the core of every portfolio ought to be invested in low-cost, broad-based index funds. Now, if you do like the idea of renewable energy, I've got no objection if you go and buy a renewable energy fund and you do that as an add-on to your core portfolio, that may be fine. But don't fool yourself to think that all I have to do is buy an ESG fund and I'm going to feel great about what I'm doing for mankind and I'm going to beat the market. Do you, shortcomings of the ratings, I guess I'll call them ratings agencies that kind of define ESG and the fuzziness that I think even the asset management industry would agree they're guilty of in terms of defining this space. You must see some upside though in efforts toward environmental, social, and governance efforts, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Look, every company ought to worry about its stakeholders. Every company ought to worry about treating their labor force well, because a happy labor force is going to be more productive and is going to help the company in the future. You certainly want to have companies that are good to their customers, because if they're not good to their customers, they will falter in the, in the long run. There's no question that companies ought to worry and worry a lot about their stakeholders, because they will not have long-run profitability if they don't. And we know that the world comms of the world, the ones who have cheated, the ones who have cheated their customers, do not do well. This is not mm -hmm. going to do well. So absolutely, companies ought to worry about their stakeholders. But that, to me, is consistent with long-run profit maximization. Even if you have an idea that you want to have a system with much less carbon use. That doesn't mean you necessarily want to sell every carbon company or every utility that is a polluter if that utility is working hard on renewable energy in the future. So it's not that that isn't important. It is important, but it is not, in my view, inconsistent with wanting to own companies that treat their stakeholders very well and, of course, have interest in the environment. Now, when you speak about the environment also, 
let me just say that this isn't the way to do it. If our country was really serious about limiting emissions, we would have a carbon tax or we would sell renewable carbon permits. There are ways to do this and ways to do it efficiently, but thinking that you can do this by just buying ESG funds, this is not the way to do it in my view. It's just, uh, it's interesting, you know, you were talking about the marketing of these funds, right? Yeah. And how they appeal really to kind of, you know, the main, Absolutely. The mainstream that's why, investor. That's why there are so many of them. So putting them and they are happen, they also happen to be the higher fee type of funds, which goes Absolutely. hand in hand, right? So pushing people's buttons. I, I graduated, I'm, I'm a kid who can remember apartheid and divestment and the like and graduated from Rutgers College in the 80s. And we had a student movement there, like a lot of other colleges did at the time. You were at Yale and, and, and the like, where divestment was this big thing. And it, re- and it really did catch hold and kind of force the, the institutions to look at their holdings in their portfolios, right? To look at General Motors and the like. If I am an investor who is socially conscious and I have a financial advisor, you mentioned uh, certain funds that we could look at. What should my strategy be? really going forward, if I do want to have a core portfolio, but I want to also invest, my buttons are getting pressed because I am socially conscious and, and the like. And I think the main thing that they're marketing towards is, as you said, a global warming, and we really should have a carbon tax and take things, take a different route here. So what, what do I do if I, if I am an investor or an advisor who has those kinds of clients? In other sure, words? I'd be happy to answer that. Let me just go back to the thing you started with on apartheid. I wonder, one of the companies that had a big operation in Southern Africa was IBM. Right. So IBM would be one of the companies that you should divest from. And this was, of course, when IBM was really doing well. IBM also was one of the few companies that was subsidizing the education of Black Africans and was really acting. They didn't like apartheid, and they were acting as socially conscious people. And so if you, in fact, did that, would I really feel good that I was fighting apartheid because I was selling IBM? I'm not sure. I think IBM happened a multinational presence that disliked apartheid in South Africa was a good thing, not a bad thing. But let me now get to your second question, what should you do? I think everybody should have the core of their portfolio in a low-cost, broad-based index funds. Then if, if you think that the future of the world is, is Tesla, <laughs> a lot of people seem to think that these days, A lot right? of people seem to think that. Then go buy Tesla as an add-on to your portfolio. Go buy companies that are into wind generation. Go buy companies that make solar panels. This is fine. You want to do that? That's absolutely fine. But you can do it with much less risk if the core of your portfolio is broadly diversified in low cost or what I would call zero cost index funds because the ETFs now have driven the costs down essentially zero 
and you can buy them with zero commissions in most of the online brokerage firms. So that's what I would recommend that people do. What are just one follow up to that? Just in your observations on the marketing of these products, what is some of the things that stand out when you see the big fund companies or the big brokerage companies, the big wall? How is Wall Street messaging or marketing this? Well, I think they are marketing it as you can buy this fund, it'll be broadly diversified. You can do well by doing good. I mean, I think that's the basic message. uh, It's a persuasive message, though. It's persuasive. It's a wonderful message, and it is persuasive. There's no doubt about it. The marketing is working. The billions of dollars are coming into these things. And what I am suggesting is that, A, people are fooling themselves. B, they're not that diversified. (laughs) And, in fact, the, the only, you know, One of the things I often like to say is any of us who talk about markets need to be very modest about what we know and don't know. And there's a lot about markets that I don't know and that nobody knows. But the one thing I'm absolutely sure about, and that is that the lower the fee I pay to the purveyor of the investment service, the more there is going to be for me. I'm very fond of the line the late Jack Fogel used to use. In the investment business, you get what you don't pay for. That's great. Thank you. Good point. Dr. Melky, I want to ask you, I was going to start by asking you to uh, lay out your pros and cons of ESG investing, but I think we've, we've covered many of the cons. Can you cite any positives that you see to the the growing appeal, and the growth of the space in general? Look, I think that to the extent that we believe that a livable planet means that real investment ought to flow into things like renewable energy, ought to flow into companies that make electric cars ought to flow into companies that will help in having a more sustainable world, that's a good thing. And I do think that investing in specialized companies like this probably would make you feel good and might even be great investments if their price doesn't get too high. You know, I'm not recommending Tesla because it's a company that has been so speculative and just uh, so, I would say, overbought that I think people might get hurt with it. But look, the good part of this is that the market is telling you that capital ought to, more capital ought to flow into these things. And I am all for that. I just don't think buying a diversified ESG fund is the way it should be done. I'd rather, much rather buy something that is highly specialized. What about the idea of, at some point, the ESG analysis or parts of the ESG analysis becoming part of of kind of normal analysis that people do, investors do, and portfolio managers do, 
when looking at an investment, the same way we look at price to earnings ratios and stuff like that. Is that is that something you could see maybe down the road where essentially all companies become scrutinized that way? I think they are now. As I said, the company has to worry about its stakeholders. If you have a company that is known as thumbing its nose on people in the area by simply spewing smoke into the environment and not caring, that company is going to get hurt. Customers are going to revolt. So there's no question, but to me, that's just part of what broader profit maximization work means. You just can't in this day and age be a profitable company if you simply ignore the needs of your stakeholders and the needs of society in general. That's not the way to be a great company. Let's look. Something like, let's talk about vaccines and what the drug companies have said. You might say, well, look, the drug company ought to go and sell a vaccine, even if they're not sure it works. In the long run, that's not profit maximization for the drug company. The drug companies, and they've said this, and it's absolutely right, that believe me, we are not going to sell a vaccine unless we are absolutely sure that it works. And we are absolutely sure that it does not have side effects that are going to kill people. That's part of what profit maximization is. That's what people are going to do as companies. And they're going to be increasingly focused on this because the world is focused on this. So I think that you're absolutely right. That will be an important thing. And I don't want to buy a drug company that is making blood tests that are absolutely phony because I'm going to lose my investment as well as doing something that is bad for the world. So again, you know, absolutely, this, these things are very important and they are very important for any company that is going to be long run profitable. I just finished working on a uh, cover story on ESG investing in the fixed income space. To me, that seems like, I know we we know all about the the vagaries in the equity space with the definitions and the ratings and so forth, but the fixed income space just seems a little neater and cleaner because they're they're essentially debts that have duration and period and yields attached to them. Do you see the same challenges when it comes to the bonds? Absolutely. Look, taste, influence, prices in the market. So let's say that now because oil stocks are so abhorred, oil companies are so abhorred, that for a a BAA oil company, it sells at a higher spread than a BAA tech company. And that's quite likely. If that is the case, and I think it's quite possible as ESG investing gets more and more possible, then what you are doing, instead of holding a broadly diversified bond portfolio, you're avoiding all all the oil bonds 
that in fact give you higher risk adjusted rates of return. And I think it will be self-defeating. I think particularly for retirement plans, I think it would be criminal for retirement plans to do that at the expense of their workers who are invested in the retirement plans so that they can live as well as it's possible to live in retirement. You mentioned retirement plans. We have discussed on this podcast in the past, and Investment News has has definitely written about the challenges of getting ESG strategy funds onto company-sponsored retirement plans. It seems to have gotten political. Maybe it's always been political. Do you understand or recognize or or see those those obstacles to getting ESG funds onto 401k plans? No, absolutely. If one believed, as I do, let's just go back to the bond funds. I mean, I think all retirement plans ought to be balanced. They ought to have broadly diversified equities. They ought to have broadly diversified bonds. They ought to have uh, equities and bonds and real estate, and probably inflation-protected securities. Uh, you know, very broad diversification is something I have always wanted, but I think that it behooves the manager of a retirement plan not to put as an option a fund that might very well underperform in the future and where it is not entirely clear that that ESG fund is all sweetness and light. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a little bit about shifting off ESG for the moment or for the conversation. You've talked over the years about challenging the the 60-40 portfolio, the traditional balance of 40% bonds. And it seems like recently your thinking has gotten to the point where you're pushing down bond allocations even more. I, I don't know if that's a relatively new phenomenon with you. It or- is a relatively new phenomenon, and mm-hmm. uh, you're absolutely right. And the reason is that we are in an era where central banks all over the world have pushed interest rates either close to zero, as they have in the United States, or even to negative yields, as they have in Europe and Asia. In Europe and Asia, more than half of the existing bonds are selling at negative yields. Even if inflation stays moderate at just under 2%, even if that's the case, That is a losing investment strategy, and the bond market has basically been rigged by central banks to have yields that are not going to provide adequate income for retirees. And so my feeling is that that 60-40 advice is wrong today. It's not going to be wrong forever. You know, at one point, I remember being, uh, I was uh, running the investment committee for uh, a private school in New Haven when I was the dean of the Yale Management School. And I was, and they wanted no risk in their uh, endowment. 
and didn't even want any equities, and we were able to buy 14% government long-term bonds. So this is not- uh, this <laughs> Well, that is was a, a long time ago, <laughs> Professor. Come on now. It was a long time ago. That was the ago, 70s, was right? I mean, that's the do. late 70s. What an era, it, you know? Exactly. So let me just say that this is simply my advice for today. For today, I would have very little in bonds, and what I have been advocating is that we have a surrogate bond portfolio that would consist of some blue chip, high dividend paying stocks. And uh, I think there will be much less risk that rather than buying a bond portfolio that's a sure loser of buying uh, high dividend paying stocks, the IBMs of the world that are yielding 5%, the Kraft Heinz that are yielding more than 5%. This uh, is, to me, a good substitution, and it's inconsistent with 60-40, and that's the reason I recommend it. And, okay, you just ruffled the feathers of an entire industry of bond fund managers, but that's okay. I want to ask you, what do you see as the future of active management? Obviously, active management has been lagging index or passive investing for a decade and a half, I think it is. But you have to have active management to to keep markets efficient, correct? That's absolutely uh, correct. But let me just pick up on on the first thing that you said, and that's ruffling the feathers. (laughs) I've been ruffling the feathers for a long time. When my book, Random Walk, came out, there were no index funds, but I said in the first edition, there ought to be an index fund because that's how you ought to invest. And a professional reviewed my book in Business Week and said, this is the biggest piece of garbage I've ever seen. The advice is just (laughs) terrible. So uh, Mm. ruffling the feathers is not something that I have worried about. I've done it all my life and will continue to do it. Now, let me get to the second part of what was your real question. Do we need some active managers? Uh, The paradox of efficient markets is you do need active managers. You need people who will ensure that information does get recorded quickly into prices. And you even need hedge funds who have their computers so close to the market that if news arises, they get in and pick up some pennies. And it's fine for them to pick up pennies. We need them because the paradox is, obviously, you need need active managers to make markets efficient. And we will continue to have active managers. And that's just fine. I still think we've got too many of them. And I think what is patently false and is becoming more and more false over time is that individuals are going to be better off buying mutual funds that are run by active managers because the good scorekeeper for active management is Standard & Poor's, which publishes these so-called SPIVA reports, which compares the S&P indices to active managers. And what we know about it is Each year, two-thirds of the active managers are outperformed by an index, and the ones that beat it one year aren't the same as the ones who beat it next year. And when you compound it over 15 years, you have over 90% are beaten. And 
Does that mean nobody can beat the market? Uh, absolutely, son. People do beat the market. We know they do. But it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. And even the people who have beaten the market over 30, 40 years, like Warren Buffett, over the last decade, even Warren Buffett has not beaten the market. So again, you can try for outperformance, nothing wrong with that. You can buy individual stock. You can buy stocks that you think meet an ESG objective. But remember, you know, some of the religious ESG funds, their idea is as long as we continue to fight gay marriage, we're doing a good thing for society. What's ESG for one person isn't ESG for another one. Right. But again, I'm absolutely convinced that the advice I've given over the years of having the core being in a low cost index fund is the right advice. I'm absolutely convinced it'll serve people well. I had to pause there for a second, Dr. Malkiel, because I was in my uh, brokerage account selling all my actively managed funds as you spoke. So <laughs> well, thanks uh, for that uh, great uh, advice. Um, okay, you <laughs> I, I have one more thing to, to touch on before I hand it over to Bruce to bring us home. But I want to ask, you've been around this industry for a long time, probably almost as long as Bruce Kelly. I want to know, what do you see as the future of financial advice? That has obviously evolved greatly. Oh, I uh, absolutely. Well, first of all, remember what I said. The thing I'm sure about is that low fees are the way to go. And as you announced at the beginning of the podcast, I am the chief investment officer of Wealthfront. And uh, what we do is we put together diversified portfolios of index funds, low cost or zero cost. We also charge a wrap fee of not 100 basis points, 200 basis points, or 300 basis points, but we do it all for 25 basis points. We rebalance, we do tax management, and I think the future for people who want their portfolios managed will be in companies like Wealthfront that use technology and use the internet to provide investment services at rock bottom costs. Professor, I just wanted to wrap up things here. You've been very gracious with your time this afternoon. We really appreciate that. It's been a real treat to have you on and, and, and for a discussion about ESG and myriad things here. Just, you know, back in April for the Wall Street Journal, you wrote a column saying this looks like a good time to buy equities. That's obviously the right call. That was obviously the right call to make at the time with the hindsight. We're going into the election right now. The market has come down significantly since its high of you know, September 1st or September 2nd. We have seen the tech stocks draw down. What is your, just your outlook going forward regarding, what do you think is the most important thing regarding the election, the Trump administration, the Biden administration, the overvaluation of the market. I'm, I'm a big believer in the price to, the standard price to earnings ratio of the S&P 500. That's still at a very high level historically, but you can make arguments about the context of it going forward and will these stocks be more profitable next year or not based on who, what kind of administration we have. So what's your outlook? What's the most important thing for 
advisors, financial advisors to look out for, do you think? Well, let me just say that uh, the the call in that earlier uh, Wall Street Journal op-ed, which did turn out to be fine, but remember that the way I justified this is I'm not trying to predict the market. I, uh, if it's one thing I know I can't do uh, is predict what the market's going to do. I can't predict- uh, But you did say it was a good time to invest, though. Well, you said it looked because, like a good time to invest. I'll tell you why. Because that the justification was rebalancing. If let's say in today's world where I hate bonds, I want to be 90% in equities and 10%, and I would actually say in basically short-term cash because I do need some ballast. But if in fact the equities go down sharply, so that my equity percentage has gone down from 90 to 80, I then want to buy equities to bring it up. So it was justified with rebalancing. I believe in rebalancing. I believe people should rebalance their portfolios periodically. So I will make adjustments, but I do it not because I'm trying to predict the market. I can't. I don't know what's going to happen in the election. Uh, my guess is that Biden will win. I don't know who's, whether the Senate is going to turn or not. And I'm not going to try to make those kinds of judgments. But I would say if markets go down sufficiently so that my equity proportion is lower than the general way I want to put my investment portfolio together that's consistent with my age and my risk tolerance, then I want to rebalance when it's appropriate. But that would be the only time I would do it. I would not do it because I'm making any kind of prediction. You're right that stocks in general are very richly valued. I tend to like the so-called tape ratio, the cyclically adjusted price earnings multiple. That price earnings multiple is among the highest uh, it's ever been, not quite what it was in 1999 and early 2000, but very expensive. On the other hand, interest rates are lower than they've ever been. So uh, you're uh, caught between a rock and a hard place. I would say this about valuation, though. It says to me that today you particularly want to be internationally diversified. Because while price earnings, cyclically adjusted price earnings multiples are as high as they've ever been in the United States, they're quite moderate in Europe, and they're actually quite low in emerging markets. So again, it says to me, this is the time to look very carefully about diversification. And diversification to me means not only the U.S., but also I want some stocks in Europe and Japan and in emerging markets. That's great. On behalf of my colleague, Jeff Benjamin, Professor, we'd just like to say thanks again. It was so great to have you. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, Jeff, that was another great episode. Yes, sir. I really enjoyed that. It's a real treat to be able to get somebody like Professor Malkiel, you know, for 30, 45 minutes like we had him being so candid and everything. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's it for this week's podcast. If it's Monday, you can find another new episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our special guest, Professor Malkiel, one more time. We also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our very own tech guy, best in the business. You can find this episode uh, or any other episode at investmentnews.com and a variety of places, including Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please leave us a rating and review on uh, Apple. I think you can give you can give people stars on Apple. You can follow us on uh, Spotify too. If you want to reach out to us directly, Jeff Benjamin's Twitter handle is at Benji Ryder, and me, Bruce Kelly, I am at BD News Guy. That's it for now, and we'll be talking to you next week. <laughs>